0: This is Euroscopic, a podcast about what mattered in Europe this week and what's coming up ahead. I'm William Glucroft, based in Berlin, and I am Martin Gack, based in Berlin. Good to see you again, Martin, and we are back and better than ever because Euroscopic, after months of deliberations. Has made a great partnership with the EU Observer, which, if you don't know what the EU Observer is, it is a nonprofit news organization that's been around all the way since the year 2000, covering what's going on in Brussels, what's going on around the European Union. So it is a perfect partner for Euroscopic. Martin, are you as excited as I am that we Hi. have this partnership? I am very, very excited.
1: I mean, I think that uh, it's not only uh, a pleasure really working with with the guys at the U Observer, uh, but it's also really a, a remarkable resource. Uh, because, as a matter of fact, I mean, the U Observer is really covering. It's really still doing uh, old style journalism, reporting,
0: having people go out there and and cover stories, uh, right? And not just the and not just sort of the the inside baseball. Uh, bureaucracy of Brussels, but really why the sometimes difficult to understand issues in Brussels actually impacts our everyday lives all around a block of 450 million people and another several tens of millions of people in Ukraine, which is what we're going to be touching on later. Uh, We'll be talking later to uh, Nikolai Nielsen, uh, who is a reporter and was out in Ukraine, very close to the front lines, reporting for the EU Observer. We'll be talking about his experiences. Uh, today is February fifth, two thousand twenty-four. Um, of course, by the time you hear this on your favorite podcast platform, some of the news might have changed, but we'll try to keep it as relevant as possible. So, Martin, it's been a minute. Uh, what have you been? What have you been looking at? What have you been watching?
1: Well, I think that by and large, as everybody else, um, I have seen Ukraine fade uh, on my radar, uh, and a lot of my attention has been focused on the Middle East, um, particularly on the bombing of Gaza, uh, but obviously as the front continues to expand, Iraq, uh, Syria, Jordan a week ago, and possibly at the end of all of this, uh, Iran, plus Yemen, of course, uh, had become really quite important, I would say almost all-encompassing in my, in my newsreader. Uh, and I'm particularly been interested in the way that this is sort of pouring uh, into the streets and the political systems of Europe and the U.S. as well, uh, because it's quite clear that these things will have major impacts on the on the politics uh,
0: on both sides of the Atlantic. What about you? Well, once again, seeing, you know, as the U.S. steps up, these tit-for-tat attacks against Iranian proxies, specifically Yemen. We're once again seeing, you know, how toothless the EU is. They don't really have a position. I mean, they make political statements, of course, um, but lacking any real military muscle or security apparatus to speak of. You're once again, despite all this talk about European sovereignty and the threat or the worries about a return of Donald Trump and the need for the European Union to be more independent and take care of itself and have a position in the world that's not just one of markets and the euro and economic issues and regulation, but also have, uh, you know, a really hard line policy when it comes to security and military affairs that they still can't, you know, the EU doesn't really have a place here or, or have you seen, have you seen other things? Have you seen anything different? Any changes from previous security crises, such as I'm thinking Libya in 2011, for example, when the French and the British, uh, went in, but really needed the U S to the heavy lifting on, on the military side of things.
1: No, um, no, I am not. I think that I'm I'm prone to agree with you. Uh, but there is, I think that there is a caveat there, which is that one of the things that I have detected over the last couple of months um, is actually a breakdown, really, uh, very much along party lines or ideological lines within the European Union that is actually best reflected by the way that different countries have been handling, particularly the Israel uh Palestinian crisis, uh, Israel-Hamas, if you will. I think it has one of its its most uh, remarkable moments when you have uh, Belgian and Spanish uh, heads of state uh, standing, uh, essentially, right against uh, the gates of Gaza, uh, condemning the Israeli government. And then a couple of weeks later, you had Borrell, chief uh, foreign policy. Uh, man in, in Brussels, also himself Spanish, also from the Socialist Party, uh, essentially giving uh, a talk in which, uh, you know, he offers a wholesale condemnation of Israel and a demand for a two-state solution. So at the same time that this is happening, I mean, you know, Germany France, the UK no longer in the EU, but still obviously casting a large shadow in terms of the foreign policy uh, of the EU, uh, aligning almost... Um, meekly with the Israeli with the Israeli position uh at, at huge probably at huge political costs. so I think that what I'm seeing which is not uh, a source of comfort at all is that countries in the face of what is clearly a major crisis uh that could have major effects not only in terms of the national politics but also in terms of like let's say European immigration, you know questions about inflation because of of the possible uh, the possible uh, uh, expansion of the Houthi battleground across the, the 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 Red Sea, what you're seeing is that foreign policy in Europe is shifting very rapidly back towards capitals and away from Brussels. Uh, and I think that this actually emphasises or underscores the point you just made that it's it's Brussels is quite simply. Lost. It does not seem to have a clear footing. It does not seem to have a clear program, uh, and certainly does not seem to have actually the muscle to, you know, clearly define and, and push forward its its its
0: policy in relation to the Middle East. Yeah. It also brings up yet again this question of what even is a so-called European value, right? The e- EU officials you know they've built an entire political system on this idea of EU values, European values, Western values, liberal values, whatever kind of fill in the blank term you want to use and what's happening in Gaza that what Israel is doing to Gaza just pulls the carpet under out from under uh, any idea of some kind of cohesive worldview when as you know, you have some Europeans, European leaders, Outright calling this genocide. Wake up, people! Like this is everything that we're supposed to be fighting against. Is everything we're supposed to be trying to prevent from happening again? And then you have other European officials, also right in the mainstream of of European politics, like in Germany, um, saying something very different. And then, as also right, to right, your point, word, refusing, refusing, overt- and utter right. the word right, right, and I- also to also to your point, then an, an additional layer, of course. The sum of the or I should say the parts of the sum of Brussels are themselves from various nation states and various political parties, each with their own unique histories and cultures. I mean, the president, the, the European Commission president, Ursula von der Leyen, is a conservative and a German and yet is also representing the European Union. So many parts of the whole of the European Union are screaming genocide, genocide, genocide. We need to do something about this. We can't be party to this. Uh, and that puts someone like Ursula von der Leyen, uh, who has a very different sentiment, like, as I said, being a German and being conservative, um, it puts her very much out of step with a lot of the people that she's or many of her colleagues.
1: As, as, a, as a socialist uh, acquaintance in Italy uh, put it to me a couple of weeks ago, he said, well, there could hardly be a worse time for Brussels to be German. I think that, you know... The issue here uh, is is really twofold. On the one hand, you don't need to subscribe to any particular account of what's going on in Gaza to realize that there has to be, as the Americans themselves have very clearly shown, that needs to be done and very clearly shown that they're incapable of doing, there has to be a way to rein in uh, not only an Israeli far-right government, but essentially rein in an Israeli military machine. Uh, that is actually doing uh, a bunch of things that
0: seem to countervive directly European values. On the- and, and reign in a military machine that is underwritten and funded and equipped by American military might and, to a lesser extent, European Europe, yeah. uh, I, military I industrial complex.
1: The other problem that you have, and it's one that has been pointed out over and over and over or, you know, during this these four months of war, is that the way that Europe is behaving in the Middle East undercuts uh, any possibility of really talking about, for instance, Ukraine, uh, or making claims about, you know, Russians and Russians' atrocities and Russian massacres and and the targeting of civilians, uh, the the evidence right now shows something that is considerably considerably um, darker than anything that the Russians have done. So I think that this is actually a big question uh, about where Europe stands and what their its its values. Uh, actually mean. The discontent and the disappointment and the lack of trust uh, does not really limit itself to other countries that are on the receiving end of European preaching uh, and and, and finger wagging. But it actually also goes to sort of the internal political market in which people stand around, uh, you know, and say, well, you know, you sell me values, you sell me human rights and civil rights and, and so on and so forth. And this is quite clearly nonsense. You don't even believe it yourself. Uh, I think that this is something that we're going to see at the time of the election translated into communities that very clearly side, the Muslim community across Europe that very clearly sides with the Palestinian cause and the Palestinian situation, who are probably not going to be going out to support left-wing governments that have not been really able to make a clear case for civil rights in Gaza. So I think that the impact will be felt greatly in the U.S. as well, by the way.
0: Yeah, of course. I mean, Biden, especially in a place like Michigan, which has a huge Palestinian population and an Arab population, uh, there's real talk of, uh, you know, especially in a place like the U.S., which has such a messed up electoral system where really a handful of votes in one small region or another can really turn an entire election for the whole country. uh, This can make him very politically vulnerable, his his. His position uh, on on Israel and its operations uh, in Gaza, and I think to a similar extent, albeit it's a very different kind of electoral system across the European Union, but to a similar extent, it's gonna we're gonna see electoral a blowback uh, as we go into 2024. Not that hypocrisy and double standards are anything new to us in the political world, um, but I I struggle to to um, think of another time when there was such a stark contrast happening simultaneously where in 2022 through 2023 you had essentially a mea culpa or an attempt of a mea culpa from the United States and from European leaders to other parts of the world saying we get it we've really messed up on on you know doing one thing and saying another in terms of our values matching our interests but we're going to try to do better now so please join us in our fight at ukraine because it's not just our struggle but it's your struggle and then Hamas attacks uh, Israel, kills a lot of civilians, and we've seen the Israeli response. And all of that has been really for nothing as the shoe goes on the other foot, as you've pointed out. You know, in a place like France, uh,
1: the Muslim vote remains extremely, extremely relevant. And I don't think that anybody uh, in the in the Macron circle or in the essentially center, center right circle can possibly think uh, that they can count on their Uh, vote. It's very difficult for me to actually believe that in the same way that there was a perception that the consensus was with Ukraine and against Russia, people in political systems do not see that the consensus at this point
0: seems to be pretty clearly siding with the Palestinian position. Right. Reasonable. I mean, of course, you know, I I can only speak most authoritatively about what's going on in Germany, which is as always, a very special case. Um, but most of the protests have been uh, pro-Palestinian or at least uh, against the war, looking for a ceasefire, however you want to formulate that. Um, most of the political sentiment, including in Germany, public opinion polls have shown that that people are not in agreement with their elites uh, lockstep or mostly lockstep uh, allegiance to the state of Israel and Israeli leaders there. Um and so, of course, but the e- the easy answer, you know, you'll see in Spiegel, you'll see in Bilds, you know, ger- major German publications, which these days look almost ideological, if not identically similar, are basically calling out, you know, the majority of people anti-Semites. Um, but what is more likely? That all of these people are wrong, are morally wrong, all of these people are Jew-hating uh, anti-Semites, or maybe there is another case to be made that maybe uh, what... The Israeli response to the Hamas attack was maybe not a great thing that we should be supporting. The other problem, as you've pointed out, about where, how is it, what is the voter backlash going to be? You see a, you see this weird bedfellow or making of bedfellows between, shall we just use a broad brushstroke and call mainstream, quote unquote, respectable politics, not only in Germany, but elsewhere, and the far right. Right? Because in this effort to support the state of Israel and call anything that's not full support for the state of Israel anti Semitic, you've seen an incredible increase in Islamophobia uh, and, more broadly speaking, an anti migrant attitude. Very much positions the far right being brought on by centrist politicians, also on the social center left, uh, introducing uh, you know making stronger regulations or laws against deport or for deportation against integration uh, making citizenship more contingent on certain ideas of integration and assimilation all the ideas that are from the far right at the same time these very same centrist mainstream politicians however you want to call them trying to make a case for why the public should vote against and reject the far right it to me it, it's a It's both a fascinating and a terrifying moment in the development of democratic politics across uh, the European Union.
1: Turns out that the conflicts, the wars that were headlining our last two years of life in Europe had suddenly disappeared and people that were writing on Ukraine uh, every single week suddenly could not figure out how to spell it. And then last week, something happened in Brussels. So, Bill, do you
0: want to bring us up to speed? Yeah, I mean, um, right, the big story that we've been, that everyone has been waiting with bated breath uh, is the 50 billion euros for Ukraine, which is, of course, to keep its budget going. This has nothing to do with uh, armaments. It has nothing to do with the war itself. It has nothing to do with reconstruction aid, although I'm sure some of that money would go to uh, rebuilding or maintaining infrastructure in Ukraine. But this was really just... Essentially paying for Ukraine's budget, literally keeping the lights on in Ukraine's government um, through this war period. And the EU, I, I think rather smartly, was trying to figure out, well, how do we divorce funding for Ukraine from the ups and downs of a political cycle? And they came up with this five-year package of money um, that wouldn't have to be approved every year, that wouldn't need unanimous consent. It'd be a one, one-stop one shopping 50 billion would be then secured to go to Ukraine and whatever happens whoever you know wins elections in the future or doesn't win the money is safe which i think is it's it's too i wish more budgetary measures were were, were made like that especially in the united states which uh, where where money is so beholden to uh, the political whims of the day but of course hungary is always the spoiler uh, spoiling uh, the eu's wishes uh, is kind of a sport for Viktor Orbán the um the head of of Hungary uh who is no secret to be a quite Russia leaning and economically so among the European countries most beholden uh to European uh, excuse me to Russian gas and oil. Uh, and he was essentially blocking it of course since so much in the EU requires a unanimous vote all 27 member states. Uh, he was enough to 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 hold up that 50 billion and it kept getting kicked down the line and there were just Every, every day seemed like Groundhog Day. We just went through Groundhog Day a few days ago, uh, where it seems like there's going to be another summit. There's going to be more negotiations. They're going to see if they can, you know, convince Orbán of of you know giving up his opposition to the money and and ultimately uh, in the last several days that did finally happen. Uh, his obstacles, the the obstacle of Viktor Orbán was cleared. I still think there's a lot we don't know. A lot has been left uh, off the record and uh, behind closed doors But how exactly after so much obstinence and resistance that Viktor Orban put up, how he was, how they eventually in the in the, in the the 11th hour seemed so easily, after so much difficulty, so easily seemed to be able to push past Viktor Orban and get his his consent to make the 27 unanimous vote on the 50 billion. And now that 50 billion is going to be, you know, uh, earmarked to be doled out over the five years to Ukraine to maintain their operations. And it was looking very dire, right? Because Ukraine was running out of money, Again, we're not talking about the war. We're just talking about normal functions of government Uh, and at a time that the United States funding uh, is very much beholden to uh, political whims, political uh, positioning uh, in an election year. So that's where we stand now on the political side in Brussels, what can seem very far away uh, from a very active and very dangerous, very ongoing uh, war uh, in, in Ukraine. It's really quite
1: remarkable because, uh, in a sense, one would say that this is the first victory of the EU against Orban um, that I have memory of. To be quite honest, I mean, you might remember that there were threats of activating Article Seven, which now is back
0: on on the table. Uh, there were threats on but and Article Seven being basically suspending the voting rights of a member state which is which is basically it's all but kicking them out of the european union essentially
1: well you know called over and over again the nuclear solution and you know we had uh we had really a very very long discussion about suspending voting rights for hungary and from poland back then i mean and the fact is that nobody uh not only managed to tame uh, the Hungarian position, which ended up looking like a fifth column inside the European Union. I mean, very often it was siding uh, with very direct forces. I mean, in the case of Ukraine, it was particularly visible. But the fact is that there was uh, no clear victory, or at least there was no clear corrective that the EU could issue to Orban uh, to stop the Hungarians from doing, you know, the, the, this, this Budapest Fidesz dance. Until this, Budapest responded by uh, saying that the EU was essentially trying to blackmail uh, Hungary into approving the 50 billion. Orban essentially understands force, understands the use of political force. Uh, there's been a lot of cuddling and give shelter. Uh, to Orban. Generally, uh, the relation was not just cordial, it was really one of almost complicity. And I think that what we are seeing now, um, it's really um, a lack of patience. Because I think that there is a very clear understanding, especially uh, in countries that are actually standing against the border, so that would be, you know, of NATO, so that would be Poland, Lithuania, Latvia, Estonia, even Finland, uh, that The danger uh, has become imminent. So the importance of of underwriting uh, the needs of Ukraine are sort of at the top
0: of you or almost at the very top of European foreign policy priorities. And it's very easy to get lost in the Brussels bureaucracy to forget that the human side of this, um, which is the war. Uh, and for that, we were able to speak to Nikolai Nielsen, who uh, just came back from a rep- reporting trip for the EU Observer, um, where he was very close to the front lines, what used to be right in the middle of the war-occupied areas of, of Ukraine. Uh, and we got a chance to talk to him to give us some insights into how people are faring uh, almost two years into Russia's invasion of Ukraine that seems to have no end in sight.
1: Hey Nick, good to
0: see you. You
1: just returned from Ukraine and you spent quite a bit of time uh, near the front lines.
2: Um, I was in Southeast Ukraine all of last week um, where I went to villages, uh, some towns to speak to people on the ground to get their testimonies about the impact of the war on their lives. And of course this was happening in the context when here in Brussels, the leaders were meeting to discuss dispersing fifty billion euros, of aid to Ukraine. So, so these testimonies was sort of in the lead up to that. I, I, I so the the first place I went to uh, was last Tuesday. It was a village called Nova Horvica. It's, it's about um, twenty kilometers away from Mikolaev. The the Russians had entered into this village in March of 2022. And they destroyed every house there. Um, When I was there, I met this woman, Natalia, who wanted to show me what was left of her home. And as we were walking down this this dirt street, there was an explosion. Uh, A mine had been detonated but this was part of a, of a mine clearing exercise. So even two years later, uh, the mines were being cleared. And there was also the, the, the sounds of, uh, of ballistic missiles being fired overhead. And as we reached to the end of the street, there is this open field. And at the end of the field, there is like a, um, a line of trees. And she pointed to that area and she said, this is where the Russian tanks had arrived. And the day was March 14th, 2022. She told me it was sunny outside. She told me they were having lunch and they were in the garden. And her son had walked out of their home. And five minutes later, the first Russian tank shell entered into their house. They were the first house to be destroyed. Uh, All the debris has since been cleared, but what's left now is um, a concrete slab Foundation. Her husband, whose name was Andre, had placed two Russian tank shells onto this concrete slab. And, you know, so she's 49 years old. She's a school teacher. And I asked, well, why do you stay? And she said, well, we've lived here for 30 years, we're rebuilding our lives. This house had been built by my husband and his father. I had also met in the same village um, a 13-year-old boy, Misha, He told me he loves to play football. And that um, so I asked, well, where do you play football? I mean, there are mines everywhere. And he said, well, they'd cleared a special field so they can play football together. So before the Russians arrived, uh, the village had a population of about 400, what is it, 460 people. And today, there are fewer than 150 remain and about thirty of them are are children
1: under the age of sixteen. When, what is the what is the feel generally? You would say, I mean, is there a sense that um, there is sort of a solution to the conflict that the conflict is coming to an end? Are they so near the front line? Do they live with the sense that the war is coming back? Well, in
2: this particular village, the the sense I got was that they're just rebuilding their lives that they refuse to, to leave, that their homes are, are there. Um, and there is a strong sense of community. Um, that question about whether or not the Russians will come back was something that was addressed in another village that I met the following day in Pravdina. Um, this village um, had been occupied by the Russians from months on end. It's about 30 kilometers from the front line. It was also the site of a war crime an atrocity committed by the Russians who had shot dead seven people, including a teenage girl. And they put their bodies in a small house and then blew it up to hide the crime. When you arrive at this village, it's surrounded by fields. And in these fields, you'll find like hundreds of um, white flags flooding around in the wind, soil looks like cotton, but each of these flags is part of a of a, also a mine sweeping exercise to remove the the mines. And it's in this village where these atrocities had been committed that I met uh, a 42 year old Svetlana, who had lived during the, the the occupation of the Russians, and I asked her the question you asked me, and she said she's terrified that Russia's will return. And she said her husband had been injured by a cluster munition. He was in the garden by the feds, speaking to the neighbor, who had also been injured, and that another person had been killed, it was down the road from there. Um, and she said her mother had um, mm-hmm. suffered a stroke because of this. So she's she's obviously frightened still, so in this, I'd spoken to the mayor of this this little town. So before the war, there are around a thousand people living there. Um, when it was liberated, there were about 180 that had remained, Svetlana being one of them. Now there's around 800 now there. Some of them are IDPs, but anyways, I'd spoken to the mayor, and she said, you know, their their needs are just just mind-boggling. Uh, a couple dozen villagers had gathered outside of her office, and to plant bread. Basics like that, just bread. But the the the, the idea for them is that again, they're just rebuilding their lives. They have nowhere else to go, um, and for whatever reason, they don't want to 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 leave, even being so close to the front.
0: Nick, the, um, the population differences you're mentioning in these villages before the Russian invasion and now, is that a result of people who have fled? Is it from people who in these villages were killed? What explains the population differences?
2: Okay. So from what I understand, when it become to Pravdina, uh, so there was over a thousand, um, uh, most of them have just fled. Huh? I'm sure some of them were killed. Um... And the ones that were, have returned are trying to rebuild their houses and their homes. But also among that population of the 800 are people who were not had not who had not originally been there. There are also IDPs from other places that are still occupied um, by the Russians closer to the front
0: or behind the front lines. Right. Internally displaced people, which there's, of course, a lot of people yeah, as the front line has shifted. And these regions, so I understand the sort of the timeline correctly... These were occupied by the Russians and then retaken by by Ukrainian forces in their first uh, and to date really successful counteroffensive. In the first year, yeah,
2: and I think uh, uh, a place where that's really where you see this really, really um, a strong indication of, of, of the things that our people are living through is the city of Kherson. Which is uh, right across, which is up basically on, which is on the Dnieper uh, River, right across on the left bank are the Russians. So proximity is really, I mean, yes, right, they're right there. And so uh, on Thursday, last Thursday, I went to Kherson City. Um, You know, you have to go through uh, heavily armed checkpoints on the Ukrainian side to get in. Um, uh, we were. Uh, I was only allowed to stay two hours there. But during that time, I spoke to uh, two families. And um, so Kherson was also seized in the early days of, of the Russian invasion. And they had pillaged it and occupied it for like nine months. During that time, there was a, a resistance, a defiance that began to surface in, in the city. The Ukrainian mayor had refused to lower the Ukrainian flags and thousands of people took to the streets to protest uh, the Russian leaders. And among them was this 42-year-old lady named Osa- um, Oksana, just three children. The oldest one is 15 years old. And she said um, during those nine months, she would not allow, allow her 15-year-old daughter to leave the house out of fear that she would be raped. Uh, in the 24 hours uh, in the lead up to me going there, had in the sixty four times, and she was telling me that nobody knows what will happen in five minutes, in one minute, and the situation could change any time. But she did say one thing. She said, after two years of war, the most critical for us is victory for Ukraine, and um, that was a sentiment that was echoed by one of her neighbors living further up the street, the sixty four year old lady Olena. Um, was caring for her husband who was recovering from cancer. Her home had been hit by shrapnel, so she was showing me some of the damage caused by the shrapnel in her living room. She said that that they're willing to continue to live in these conditions because they believe that Europe and the United States will come to their help to win this war and they're willing to wait until that happens.
1: Yeah, I mean, that, given yeah. given all the sort of political wrangling that we have seen over the last couple of months, which I'm sure it has actually you know, reached the ears of people living at the front line, I mean, did you detect in in, a, in any way a sense of disappointment or betrayal? I mean, a sense that the West did not stand up or sort of, you know, live up to its promises?
2: But, I, I, mean, I mean, like I said, I always spoke to two families, In Kherson city, but the but the um, the one lady, uh, well, um, Oksana, the forty two year old with the three kids, she was defiant, in the sense that she's convinced that Uh Ukraine will win, that the Russians will lose, and you know she doesn't have any guns or anything like this, but her decision not to leave to her is almost like a weapon of resistance. Um, and, uh, the same thing with Olena, she was saying that they believe that European countries, the United States will come to their help.
0: I want to get, I definitely want to get to this idea of victory and winning in a second, but, but first I'm wondering, so this is Eastern Ukraine that you're describing before Russia's full-scale invasion, at least in the popular, popular narrative, I don't know if it's really true, but at least in the popular narrative, there's the idea that Eastern Ukraine was more sympathetic to Russia closer culturally to Russia, mm. identify with Russia, A, is that true with the people you spoke to? And B, what kind of, of change in mindset has there been as a result of these these horrific war experiences?
2: Well, but like I said, when I mean, Karsin was, was seized, there was a massive resistance that emerged against the Russian occupation. So if that says anything, you know, It's they're obviously not welcome. What, whatever kind of sympathies they might have had with the Russians beforehand. But they were um i mean from what i understand thousands had taken to the streets now when it came to oksana she was saying that you know she could never because i I asked her if she could ever
0: forgive the russians and she said no and did these you know you're just harrison's of course a major city in ukraine the villages though i mean these are small places yeah they do they feel on their own are they getting in terms of reconstruction or just support with basic necessities is it part of a larger municipality does do they feel that they're part of that? They're part of a system that's helping them. Look, when when I went to those two villages, I mean,
2: those those houses were destroyed two years ago, and they're still they're still in ruins. So you might see like some blue tarps over damaged roofs, but you know there might be some construction material, but you get the sense that not much is happening. That you get the sense that they might get some aid from made organizations, uh, maybe some minimum funding from the state, but you really get a sense that uh, it's not really coming together very quickly. Like in, in Pravda, I mean, they're handing out bread. She told me the mayor, our, our, our biggest priorities are dealing with mental illness, uh, getting a water station. You know, so basic services like that, uh, electricity, Things like that, so I I, they, I don't know. I, you get a sense, at least I got a sense, that not much is happening in terms of rebuilding uh, our lives. Um, and they obviously need uh, a lot more help,
1: Nick. I want to ask you a question to wrap up, uh, which is how has uh, your vision of the conflict changed, uh, by being there, especially in the fact that. Mm-hmm. At a distance, I mean of course we understand that this is going on, but it has been eclipsed by sort of you know other conflicts. I mean has has it changed for you? I, I think you know we know
2: that there's a war going on, but when you get closer to it, it brings on a whole other dimension, a human dimension of people living living there day in and day out um, that's detached. From the decisions that are being made here in, in Brussels, that appear you know abstract and, and politicized. So uh, when you when you hear the roar of missiles being fired overhead, when you see um, mines being detonated, when you see people queuing for bread, uh, when you go to a place that been, has been shelled sixty four times in one day, your perspective changes. And uh, I only saw a a glimpse of what these people are going through day in and day out. So, yeah, absolutely.
0: So that was Nikolai Nielsen, reporter for EU Observer, uh, very generously giving some of his time to talk about his experiences reporting in eastern Ukraine, very close to the front line. You can get more of his reporting, his full articles at EUobserver.com uh, Hopefully, we can check in with him again in the future. Hopefully, he'll come back um, and tell us uh, more uh, as his reporting develops. And that also brings us to the end of our first episode in partnership with the EU Observer. Uh, so we will have a lot more to come. Uh, but let's wrap up this episode with a little bit of what uh, is on our plate right now, what we're looking forward to, maybe not positively looking forward to, but at least looking ahead to uh, in the days and w- week to come, uh, since we will be coming at you on a weekly basis. Martin, over to you.
1: Well, mostly, uh, I think that what is ahead is this lull in the confrontation with Hungary, uh, which has sort of some rather large... Uh, Implications, I mean, Hungary, uh, Orbán, along with Meloni in Italy are becoming centerpieces in what is an ongoing uh, development of far-right forces across Europe with very clear plans for Brussels. Uh, So the elections, the European elections in June might bring about a wave of far-right groups that could end up becoming a a majority uh, in the European Parliament for the first time in,
0: you know, its history. As everybody's also striking, right? At least uh, Germany is basically becoming Italy and France without the lifestyle and the better weather um, in terms of the strike culture. Uh, we've now had multiple strikes on the regional long-distance transport for the first time in a long time. Local transport strikes. Security personnel at airports are striking. Now the uh, the airport personnel are going to be striking. Um, it's a land of strikes, uh, one could say. Um, that also appears to be no end in sight. Uh, and all of these things are unfolding at a European level, even as they're unfolding at national levels. Because as you said at the top of the show, a lot of what happens in the EU always comes back to the member state capitals and what's happening at a local and regional level. What is the EU, if not just a big conglomeration of of local and regional politics?
1: A large collection of various cheeses and sausages.
0: Uh I'm at least go with one of those two things. And I, I appreciate anybody who enjoys all those things. So it's been a pleasure. It's been a pleasure next week. Absolutely. We're going to have next week with more of all those things we talked about. Um, for those who want more specifically on Germany, you can check out my Substack dot schland.substack.com. I'm William Bluecroft. I'm Martin Gack. And goodbye. Bye.